0: You like that song, Hyacinth? Yeah, I do too. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. Beginning at verse 30. Matthew writes, and after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Father, uh, these were certainly challenging words, difficult words for Peter and the others to hear. They're not much easier for us. The more we think about them, the more troubling they can become. And so we ask that as we look at this scripture, breathed out by you, bearing your authority, that you would teach us and encourage us, not by our ability to do what Peter couldn't do, but by your grace and your mercy. And we thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. I want to again begin by just laying a foundation of, of God's decrees and God's word and the perfections of them. It's an, an enormous blessing to have the word of God in writing. Uh, there's so much that the scripture tells us that we would never know otherwise. Romans 1 says that looking at nature, looking at the, the, listening to the voice of the heavens, as Psalm 19 calls it, we can catch an idea of God's eternal nature and divine power, but that's it. Because of the scriptures, we know that our creator is named Yahweh. That's the name he gave to Moses when Moses says, what is your name? Uh, we know that the scriptures tell us how everything came to be. The scriptures tell us how we came to be. To be And what our purpose is. Our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31 and Psalm 73.25. The scriptures tell us, by the way, why we, don't in, why we don't glorify God and why we don't enjoy him. And it was because our father Adam sinned and his nature, when it fell, became our nature. It became fallen. He passed it down to us. And the scriptures, of course, tell us God's predetermined plan that his own son would take on human flesh, live a holy life, die on the cross to save sinners, and rise from the dead to give them eternal life and an eternal hope. Because Yahweh can't make a mistake, his word is inerrant. Because Yahweh can't be wrong, his word is infallible. It's an incredible blessing to have the scriptures. They are the only God-breathed revelation that we have. There is nothing else. There is simply nothing else. It's all sufficient for all of life and godliness, Second Peter one three says. Everything that we need to know in terms of content of truth for life and godliness is contained in the scripture. It won't tell you how to how to cook eggs. It, it won't tell you how to uh, handle the, the business of your home or those types of things in, in many ways, but it tells us what we need to know in terms of our life with one another and our life with our creator. It's not overstating the matter to say that the Bible that you have in your hands, whether it's in printed form or in digital form, uh, is, is all the information you need about life and godliness there's no more data to add the power by the way for that life and godliness comes from his spirit it doesn't come from you this is all true about the word because of god's absolute knowledge he doesn't guess at what's going to happen in the future he doesn't predict like people today predict uh, a couple of weeks ago, people were predicting that San Francisco would beat Kansas City in the Super Bowl by a small margin. As it turns out, turned out, Kansas City beat San Francisco by a small margin. That's human predictions. That's the way human predictions function. Uh, I read about a man, by the way, somewhere in, in Wisconsin. He was not named. He lost $100,000 betting on the coin flip. He predicted it would be one and it was the other. Well, that's, that's not biblical prophecy. The scripture sometimes will even use, depending on your, your translation, the word predict. But you should never think about it as being our kind of prediction. Instead, it's a foretelling of what is absolutely certain and unquestionably going to happen. And there's two reasons that that certainty exists. The first reason is the decrees of God, the, Yahweh's decrees. Acts 2.23, Peter was talking about Jesus dying on the cross, and he said it happened according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4.28, the apostles were praying after being threatened by the Jews And they said there that we know that what Herod did and Pilate and the Romans and the people of Israel was all according to whatever your hand and purpose predestined to happen. They simply were instruments in the hands of God. Psalm 33.11 says that uh, the, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. And the thoughts of his heart from generation to generation... Isaiah 46.10 says that Yahweh is the one who declares the end from the beginning, which means before anything was created, he had already declared the outcome. All of these are references to the decrees of God, which exist in infinite number. They have to do with everything that happens, not just the big events, but the most microscopic events. Jesus said... Are two sparrows not sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground. Not one of them dies apart from your father. And he didn't mean that God sits in heaven and looks down however many trillion miles and says, oh, there goes another one. He means that God, Yahweh, has been with that sparrow since it was born, governing its life, and that when it dies, he is Immediately and intimately present with it in its death. The scripture says that God has numbered and named the stars. There's more than a hundred of them. In fact, I think there's more than 200 of them. There's trillions as far as we know. And of course, our knowledge is so, so limited. There may be trillions upon trillions. Is it, is it too much that if God... Names and numbers the stars. Is it too much to think that he names and numbers the grains of sand? That, that when he created all things and he created every, every hydrogen atom, that he numbered them and he named them and he knows their history intimately because he is with each one? That's God's knowledge. And it, it happens because he has decreed it. What he decrees takes place, and nothing takes place that he has not decreed, including Satan's rebellion and Adam's sin. He's not the cause, ever. He does not do evil, but he has decreed it. The second reason for God's knowledge is his eternal nature. If it's hard to understand his decrees, then just sit down and hold on, because God's eternal nature is, is then... Tilting at windmills, our ability to understand it is is incredibly limited. Uh, I don't have a problem believing that right now as we're gathering and worship, the Lord is with his people everywhere that they're worshiping. That God is omnipresent. That he is fully present with us and he is fully present with others as they worship. And his presence is not divided. But God is in time the same way. Time is not part of God. Time is part of creation. And so, God is not just everywhere at the same time. He is in every time at once. How can Jesus say to Peter and the others, You will fall away from me tonight? First, because God had decreed it. Second, because Jesus had already witnessed it. He's witnessing Adam fall right now. He's witnessing you in eternity with him in fellowship. Right now, that's what Romans 8 is getting to when it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined in time. He also began the process of salvation within time. But he foreknew you as his child in eternity to come before anything had been created. That doesn't mean he looked forward down the corridors of time, I've heard people say, and saw what would happen and then learned from that. It means he determined so much that you would be his child, that in eternity to come, he is already there with you in your glorification and Christ's likeness. He's already witnessed it. A. W. Tozer writes in his wonderful little book, *The Knowledge of the Holy*. If you haven't written it, read it. If you haven't written it, don't. It's already been written. But if you haven't read it, read, read it. He says, "God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He has already lived all our tomorrows as He has lived all our yesterdays." For God, everything that will happen has already happened. This is why God can say, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. He sees the end and the beginning in one view. Prophecy works because God has decreed it and because God has already witnessed it taking place. That brings us to this scripture that we have before us, that after singing a hymn they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Jesus is not speaking this this negative, depressed statement. He's foretelling what has already been foretold. It's already been sealed in Scripture, Zechariah 13, 7. And now he applies it to them. We know that the Scripture speaks of Jesus, the Messiah. It speaks of his birth in Bethlehem, his birth of a virgin, uh, his holy life. It speaks of him being called a Nazarene, being called out of Egypt. It speaks of him being... uh, uh, being taken captive, of him suffering for our sins, being pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquities, being raised from the dead. Scripture also speaks prophetically of his disciples abandoning him. It, it, Psalm 41.9 foretells Judas' betrayal. Zechariah 13, 7 here foretells the falling away of his disciples. We could wish that every scripture about us was happy and positive, but that's just not the case. There are all kinds of scriptures that have to do with the the Lord's suffering and death. And there are a handful that foretell the failure of, of his disciples. And because of the, the eternal decrees of God. And his existence in eternity. God can speak with, with absolute authority. And, says, and say it will happen. And in fact. Speaking in the place of God. To me it is happening. I'm watching it happen right now. I'm watching it happen right now. God's knowledge is never incorrect. He says in Isaiah chapter 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bear and sprout, and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which comes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So let me ask you, could anything prevent the crucifixion of Jesus? We know in John 13, uh, speaking of this night, they've had the the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. During the meal, uh, according to John 13, Jesus said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And Judas got up and left. And we know that he went to make arrangements to lead the soldiers to the garden and arrest Jesus. What if Judas had decided halfway, what am I doing? What has he ever done harmful to me? I can't do that to him. I'm just going to go back home. Was it possible that Judas could do that? No. God had decreed it. Was it possible that the soldiers, when they came up and said, uh, when, when they came up and Jesus said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And they fell. Was it possible that they would say, we're not touching this guy? No. Was it possible that at the trial that the chief priests and the elders would hear Jesus speak and believe that he was the Messiah, you are the Christ, the the son of the living God? No. Is it possible that Pilate could have said, you guys are nuts, he's done nothing wrong, I won't crucify him? No. Because Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jews did whatever and everything that God's hand and purpose had predetermined. It was not possible. Is it possible that anything would keep these men from falling away? No. It had been decreed. It had been prophesied. By the way, out of the countless number of decrees, God has chosen to take just a bare handful and seal them in Scripture. They don't come to pass because they're in Scripture. They come to pass because they're his decrees. They're in Scripture because they're his decrees so that we know when they come to pass, he has done it. But the decrees of God that are not in scripture are just as cemented and fixed. Now we can praise God that Jesus didn't stop with, you will fall away. He says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So God had decreed the resurrection of Christ. He had already witnessed it as taking place. Jesus the man, it, this, this is so hard for us to comprehend. Maybe it's, hard, maybe it's just hard for me and not for you. But Jesus the man is, is looking at time unfold. A second at a time as it does for all of us. But Jesus <laughs> the eternal word of God at the moment he spoke to them was already resurrected. And dying for their sins. Because for God, time is as manipulatable as as this. We can look at this in three dimensions. We can go here, we can go here, we can go here, we can go here. God can do that with time. And he does do that with time. And so Jesus says, I will be raised. So there's hope for his resurrection. And then he says, when he says, I will go ahead of you to Galilee, I think what's implied to there is, it, to put it in human terms, guys, we're okay. You're going to fall away because of me this night, but not permanently. I'm going ahead of you into Galilee. I'm not going without you into Galilee. I'm just going ahead of you, and we will be rejoined there. I think that's the implication of his words. He would see them there. And the truth was, he would see them there. After Jesus was raised, the angel, the angels told the women, go tell his disciples, he is not here, he is alive, and he will meet them in Galilee. And where were they on Sunday night? On the road to Galilee? No, they were in Jerusalem. So Jesus came to them there. But he did see them in Galilee. He doesn't say here, the next time I see you will be in Galilee. But he does go ahead of them into Galilee. Peter answered verse 33 and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Lord, you might be right about those other guys, but you're wrong about me. You don't know me as well as I know myself. This wasn't the first time that Peter had objected to the Lord's prophetic statements. In Matthew 16, Jesus began to tell his disciples for the first time that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside privately and said, Lord, God forbid it. This shall not happen to you. My my first chapter heading here was not defensive unbelief. My first chapter heading here was, oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. Jesus, you don't know me as well as I know myself. Back in Matthew 16, it was Jesus, you don't know God like I know him. And Jesus speaks to him pretty clearly, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking of the things of God, you're thinking of the things of man. I I I I don't think that Jesus or that Peter doubted Jesus a whole lot. What's being said here is really hard. It's being, this is just brutally hard for these men to hear. You imagine a, a wife and a husband in a faithful marriage. They've been married for decades. And the husband is going away on a week-long trip. And the wife says, I know that when you go away, you're going to commit adultery. How hard that would be to hear. And and to think, I would never do that. That's that's how Peter's taking this. This is devastating to him. It's just unthinkable to him that he would ever do this. He loves Jesus so much. He's so committed to him. There's all kinds of happy promises of Scripture. Matthew 25, 34, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared uh, prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Claim that. That's a good promise. I like that that promise. That's a good one. How about Romans 8, 32? "He He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Claim that. There's a good promise you can put that on a plaque hang it on your kitchen wall that nobody hangs tonight you will fall away because of me on their wall and so peter offers a a defensive statement of unbelief I don't believe you. Even though all may fall away, even though the rest of these guys will fall away, I will never fall away. Peter didn't want to hear it. It was impossible for him to even admit the possibility that Jesus could write, could be right, much less the reality that Jesus was right. But it's crucial that he take Jesus' words to heart not because Jesus is interested in beating him up or destroying his self-image or, or putting him into a state of depression, but because he and the others would fall away. And Jesus knew they would. And he bore them no ill will because of it. And they needed to know that. And so Jesus says in verse 34, I say to you, truly I say to you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And it was Peter's opportunity to say, Lord, forgive me for doubting you. I don't want to think that I could ever fall away, but if you say that I will, it must be so. And I can only ask that you would forgive me and that you would restore me. But instead, Peter doubles down And frankly, he does exactly what we would do. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. Lord, you couldn't be more wrong about me. I know myself infinitely better than you know me. And if it comes to the point of you being crucified, you just look to your left or right and I'll be there with you, is what he's saying. And that's not what happens. So let, let's bring this home. Most people don't have a problem with God working all things according to the counsel of his will as as Ephesians 1.11 says. We just don't expect that the counsel of his will might take us through the valley of the shadow of death or that he has decreed and even witnessed our sinful rebellion against him. If you're like me, you've probably made made promises to God about your future self. Lord, I won't commit that sin again ever, I promise. Lord, I've learned my lesson. I'll never doubt your forgiveness again. Lord, I've wasted too many opportunities. I'll never stay silent about the gospel again. Lord, I'll never be like that person who, and then you can fill in the blank. And how long do we keep those promises? A year or a month or a day or an hour? We don't have the ability to control ourselves in that way. Jesus makes a very specific statement to his disciples about their behavior that night before sunrise. And he's not making this statement about us. He is not saying to you and me today, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. He's not saying that. But other scriptures do speak to us. Like James chapter 3 verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. See, God knows it. He knows it. He knows that you and I stumble in many ways. Proverbs 20 verse 9. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure. And I am clean from my sin. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. And God knows it. Yahweh knows it. Paul wrestled with this during the course of his life. And he writes in Romans 7, I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner man, in my heart, in my soul. But I see a different law in my members, in my body. It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. The sin that is within us is at war with the new life that is within us. And Paul says, my flesh still wins and makes me a slave. He wrote the Galatians, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you do not do the things you want. We could go on quite a ways. The point that I want to make is that God knows you. He knows you. He knows your inability. He knows your weakness. He knows that you and I are only dust. He knows that. And Jesus doesn't break a bruised reed, and he doesn't extinguish smoking flax. He doesn't come to people who are broken by their own sinfulness and finish the job of destroying them. He comes to heal and restore. Matthew ends the account here. Luke gives us another statement or two from the Lord Jesus during this very same account. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you, plural, You use plural there, all of you, like wheat, but I have prayed earnestly for you, singular you, Peter, so that your faith, Peter, may not fail, and you, Peter, once you, Peter, have returned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says Satan desires to sift him and all of them like wheat. That sifting is not a searching for sin. I've heard countless pastors say, this, you know, Satan wants to sift your life and he's looking for sin. You didn't have to go looking for Peter's sin. It, it, it was kind of there. You don't sift to search. You sift to separate. Satan wants to separate you from me and from one another. He wants you isolated To make you vulnerable. Satan, Peter says, Peter says, is the prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Who does the prowling lion devour 2,000 years ago? The same person who gets devoured today in Africa. It's the one that gets separated from the flock, it's the one who manages to drift away while they're feeding and they get isolated and they're vulnerable. The devil wanted to separate the disciples from the Lord Jesus and from one another, and Jesus gave him permission. Think about that. It's our Job moment, or rather their Job moment. Satan comes and says, I demand that you let me sift your disciples like wheat. And Jesus, instead of saying no, says, okay. And he doesn't even seem concerned about it. Why? He says, I have prayed earnestly for you. Not, I will pray when it happens. I have already prayed that your faith may not fail. And so it won't. And you, when, once you have returned, not if, but once you have returned, not if, once you have returned, Strengthen your brothers. Satan would separate them. Peter would fall away. The others would fall away. But he would return to fellowship with the Lord. Yahweh had decreed both events. And Jesus foretold them to Peter and the disciples not to destroy their faith, but so that their confidence would be in him and his grace and his power and not in their ability to stand firm. The Father didn't just elect those who would be perfect. The Son didn't just die for those who never suffer weakness. The Spirit doesn't just fill perfect vessels. The Father elects sinners. The Son died for sinners. The Spirit makes his home in sinners. We're not safe and secure because we're able to keep ourselves, but because our faithful God has decreed that we would be justified, sanctified, and glorified. He's not only decreed it, He is ahead of us in time witnessing it. And he's on the other side of of that wall of the eternal state with you enjoying perfect fellowship with you and you with him. You're just not there yet. We're just not there yet. How all that works, I don't know. But it's true. I want to share three scriptures with you that grant me tremendous comfort and perhaps they will to you too. Jesus says in John fourteen twenty seven. peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful Paul writes before expressing his grief at at his sinful state, Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in hope of the glory of God. We don't boast in hope of our own success. But the glory and the grace of God upon those who were introduced into eternal life by faith, and stand in grace, not by their works. And then Paul wrote the Philippians and Philippians 4: Be anxious for nothing, beloved. That would include your sin, and your weakness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and thanksgiving with or petition with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and all your problems will go away. He says, in the midst of all of that suffering, in the midst of this whole long process, we're in, the peace of God will guard you. It'll guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Father, I give you thanks for your love for us, for your graciousness and your kindness to us. We cannot begin to imagine how hard it must have been for Peter and the others to hear those words from the Lord that night. And we can completely commiserate and understand their insistence that they would never fall away, that they would never deny you. We would do the same thing. But the truth is we don't stand in you because of our own ability. We're not kept by our own faithfulness in grace. We're kept by grace in faithfulness. And there are times for your purposes That you would be glorified, that your name would be exalted, that you have decreed that we would be weak. And even that we would fail. Jesus gave Satan permission to sift his disciples, to separate them for a time. And their hope was not in their ability to find each other again. Their hope was in the fact that Jesus had prayed for them. And so, Lord, we thank you for your prayers for us, your intercession for us, the Spirit who prays for us, Jesus himself who mediates for us. We thank you, Father, that your entire attention is not focused on keeping the planets where they are or keeping the seasons rolling, but your full attention is on your people. And your eyes are fixed on us. You never sleep. You never rest. So grant us hope. Grant us peace with this temporary condition in which we find ourselves, not because the condition is good, but because you are bringing us to glory. We thank you for that in Jesus' precious name.